You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 124 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me from sunny San Jose is Daniel Aaron Dilger. Hi, Victor. I'm sitting in the park. I don't have a special <laughs> podcast room. Um, Apple has a podcast station here, but it's all booked up, so we're going to make the best of what we can here. Very good. So thank, thank you for joining us. And you're out at WWDC. Can you, can you recap what you think were some of the biggest announcements? So their big public announcement, the keynote to begin with, um, they outlined a number of, was I guess, six different things. Um, some of the biggest things were obviously the new iOS 11 and uh, the new Mac OS. One of the biggest things about iOS is the big focus on iPad that a lot of people have been talking about. And um, I have been sitting through very detailed uh, uh, technical overviews of... You've been talking about iPad and some of the big changes in iOS for iPad. So what would you say is the most striking change that everyone's been talking about? Certainly drag and drop. Um, in addition, they've kind of cleaned up the multitasking and uh, the, the newest iPads are more powerful so they can handle multiple apps. You can have two apps side by side and an app floating on top of it and a picture and picture window floating on top of that on the, the newest, uh, most powerful iPad Pros. Um, but being able to move data between apps is really important. And with drag and drop, um, it seems like kind of a simple thing to add, but it actually requires a lot of operating system support and also support from developers and their app. The thing with drag and drop is it's not just the ability to grab data, move it around, um, but it also allows you to use two-handed gestures to, uh, for example, select a file or object. And while you have it, while you're dragging it with one finger, you can tap other items that are also draggable, and it turns into a collection under your finger. And then you can navigate between apps. You can go down to the, the, the new uh, dock and select another application move to another app. So it's, it's similar to the experience on a Mac when you're using a mouse. Um, but when you're using multi-touch, uh, being able to use two hands is really important to be able to click and drag, which is not something you could do with just one finger, as obviously. Have you had a chance to experience uh, this, this sort of finder-like behavior on iOS? Have you gotten a chance to really get a handle on it? Yeah, so we did the, they did a hands-on right after the event. Um, and then uh, did a presentation with looking at um, the the new hardware and uh, using some of the features of iOS 11. I haven't yet loaded the beta. I've been in sessions as much as possible and talking to developers and getting um, their takes on it. And so I'm excited to try out this stuff in a, in a more in more detail. I have loaded the beta and I have not quite gotten a good grasp on drag and drop. It doesn't feel natural to me yet. Yeah, I'm some, some of this for. requires support from uh, third-party apps, too. I mean, if you're using different apps, the most one of the most obvious things is the new, uh, I guess it was called the iCloud, iCloud, iCloud Drive. Drive app. Yeah. So that is now kind of opened up into, it's not quite the Finder, but it's, and it's not really a, the file system. It's a way to access apps that builds upon what was already there with iCloud Drive. And also opens up other cloud storage services like Google's and Microsoft and Box and whoever else wants to participate in it. Um, allows you to grab your files locally or on 
in the cloud and uh, use them throughout the system with your apps. Right, but just the the physical gestures required is something that's still not quite clear to me. Um, and and I'm sort of you, you remember when they introduced natural scrolling and gestures to the Mac? They put in system preferences a sort right. of animated video showing you what the gestures looked like and how to use them. And I'm sort of hoping that we get that kind of tutorial for the Files app for drag and drop, because it seems yeah, to me that that's they've they've developed this thing, but when it becomes actually ready to go live, we need a little more support for it. It does require some. Uh Depending on how you're using it, if you just have it sitting, if you have an iPad sitting on a table and you're trying to move around with two fingers, it's easy, especially if it's a light item, to move the thing around, and you know it requires some dexterity. Um, also, uh, a lot of people are using the iPad Pros with keyboards, so if you have it more of a installed in sort of a base like that, that would make it a little bit easier to use. But yeah, getting getting to familiar with some of the advanced like two-handed gestures requires a similar kind of effort to uh, the new touch bar on the MacBook Pros where you know, you're you're touching the bar with one hand and you're using the trackpad with the other and you can do gestures so it's kind of a similar uh, sort of thing. One of the things that kind of struck me at WWDC this year, Apple's always made a, a really strong uh, effort to make things more available to people with disabilities and accessibility is a uh, a major product feature. Accessibility is basically uh, making your products work for people who have a, an inability to do something, an inability to hear, an inability to see, an inability to you know, manually manipulate something with your hand. Um, at the same time, they're doing things like text, these gestures that uh, go in the other direction where you're doing more and more complicated things with your hand. And a number of technologies that Apple is using and, and really doing interesting thing, things with uh, they're they're using very sensory things in concert. So on one hand, they're making things possible to use without, you know, missing one sense or ability. And on the other hand, they're they're combining things together in in really interesting ways. Uh, one of the things that was shown off that it didn't really occur to me before was, uh, for example, the 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 fake button, uh, the home button on I, iPhone Seven. It's backed with a actuator, a little motor that vibrates. It's very precise. It gives you an idea of how it's vibrating. But in addition to that, when you click on it, it actually plays a little sound. Because when you experience something, we're used to experiencing, uh, we sense things with different you know, sensory organs at the same time. So visuals and audio are, are an obvious thing that you know, when you're watching a movie and the audio is off a little bit, it's, it's very distracting and um, it, it feels very artificial. And it's kind of similar in other respects. So to, to do uh, haptics like like the touch um, the touch based uh, home button when it plays a sound and if it, if it, if it plays a, a controlled sound that's very precise it makes the button feel more precise and so there's a lot of things that Apple's doing that are, that are on one hand very uh, sensory oriented while at the same time working to make things possible to use without so you know in the in the what we're talking about with gestures and these two-handed gestures, those are going to be difficult for some people, people who have never done those kind of gestures before. Um, there has to be a backup way to do those kind of things. So Apple's making multiple ways to do things. So if, if that's something that doesn't appeal to you, you can still work around and get things done another way. But 
doing these complicated gestures, whether it's a touch bar or uh, the new gestures on for iPad and iOS 11, allow people who have complicated workflows or you know doing a specific task to do those complicated things easier and faster. So they're working on both sides of the the aisle on, on things like that. And I thought that was an interesting concept that kind of came up to me as I'm sitting through sessions this this year. Yeah, and the it's it's always interesting because it's sort of the the accessibility is a strong thing, but sometimes gets overlooked. That they're working at it from both ends of the spectrum is very important. Let me ask you because this is this is something that you mentioned briefly. You said you know, people use these devices in keyboards, right? The uh, the bridge keyboard, the clam case, the the Logitech. There there are all sorts of keyboard things that make them more laptop like. How do these changes make it closer to a computer replacement? Oh, it's making it more powerful. So it's, there's things you can't couldn't previously do um, and now you can because uh, you're able to do more complex interactions with things hold on we talked about this Victor hold hold on just a second (laughs) so um, Kenny is here he's one of the winners of the um, scholarship this year Um, and he had some interesting stories well Kenny welcome and and congratulations on winning the scholarship to come out to WWDC oh thank you so much can you tell me what was what was the hardest thing about the competition? What was the hardest part of me getting the scholarship? So um, Apple, they had taxed us to build on an interactive scene through code on Playgrounds, um, which is uh, Apple's uh, coding editor um, that allows you to code in Swift. And I, what I did was I started uh, trying to think about some of the things that Apple really cared about, some of their core values. And one that stood out uh, was their, like, one of the most recent ones, which was diversity and inclusion. Um, and so I decided to do a playground that um, entailed that. Because um, I, I noticed that Apple uses uh, diversity as a way to bring people from all different types of countries, like different backgrounds, um, to uh, bring new, new ways of uh, approaching and solving problems inside of their company. Um, and so... I built the playground that um, had the original Apple logo in the middle. On the background, I actually had the modern Apple logo in the middle, and then on the background, I had the original Apple logos, which are the colorful ones, um, the rainbow one. And I had them all flying around in the background, and I had a lot of um, lines and stars flying around. And and. I, the hardest part was using uh, two of the classes that I used, which were the CA emitter layer class, and I used that to uh, uh, have some of the, the objects in, in the scene uh, burst. Um, and then the second one was a UI Bezier path, which I used to uh, draw uh, colors on the screen. And, and that was like the hardest part because Apple, uh, they don't have those classes documented very much. And so I had to do a lot of uh, researching myself and uh, finding tips or bits of snippets around the internet uh, so I could piece it together. So some of the challenge was the lack of documentation. Yes. Now that you've come to WDDC, do you think you'll have an easier time getting that kind of information that was hard to find before now? Um, uh, definitely, because uh, here at WDDC, we have a lot of sessions and our labs. And when I go to the labs, we have engineers that are like experts that specific uh, sort of thing. Um, and then I went there and I, uh, I asked them for, um, so I asked them for like uh, 
help, but I did uh, ask for feedback on the project I was working on. Um, and then they said that they're, they're planning on working on the documentation and improving it. And which sessions do you think you've gotten the most out of? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, so one of the, uh, I attended mostly labs because the sessions I could watch online when I'm at home. Um, and I use labs for networking. Um, so I, uh, one of the labs that I uh, got a lot of was the... So I had this app that I have built before. And I was trying to understand, because uh, I, I built the app, and in the last three days, I received over 7,000 downloads and then made $500. And I didn't know where that was coming from, and I hadn't announced the app anywhere. So I went to the business and marketing uh, lab to talk about um, what had happened. And uh, I, I talked to some of the uh, Apple, uh, like one of the top app employees in, in this section, and they said that. Um, that because I had I was playing around with the prices on the app, so I, before it was fifty dollars, and I changed it to zero. And so the person told me that when I changed the price of the app, there are uh, bots that scour the app store and they check with the prices. And then every time I change from a high price to a low price, the bots start announcing um, that I had changed the price of this app. And so there, so my app comes out on top of the search results, and that's why I was getting um, all of the downloads. So. That one really helped me understand what was happening with the app. What has been the best part about this experience? The best part of the experience uh, was the network. Uh, Because before, uh, when I hadn't come to WWDC, if I wanted to reach out to an Apple engineer, I would have to do it through LinkedIn. But then when I would add them on LinkedIn, uh, no one accepted the the friend request. And that was because they didn't know me. Um, But now that I'm here and I have uh, this scholarship thing, I feel like it has opened tons of opportunities for me. And so I tried again and I added them on LinkedIn uh, and they all started accepting uh, the friend request that I was sending. So the network, uh, it, it grew immensely. Now, not, not everyone can win the scholarship. So what do you recommend to... Not, not everyone can win that scholarship, though. So let me ask you, what do you recommend to other people who may not have yeah, that same opportunity? Yeah, the biggest piece of advice that I would give is to... Um, build something that you want to build and something that Apple wants you to build. Um, so uh, think about it from both sides. What does Apple want? Well, they want you to know and understand who they are. And so what I did was, from, like, from my perspective, I searched for Apple's core values, things that they, that they really value. And that's when I noticed that I read online that one of the toppest ones was diversity and inclusion. And so... I, I like programming and I, I love to code and uh, using uh, Apple's uh, uh, kits. And so that's why, uh, I, I, that's the best advice that would give, to just find something that Apple wants and to like, build, build on that. What do you think you're going to build next? You know, you get to go home from this, you get to think about it all and sort of take it all in and, and, and let it all gel together. What, what problem are yeah, you going to so solve after next? the keynote, I, I, I noticed, uh, like, after one of the things that really impressed me was the AR kit that Apple had released. And so, when Apple released their new AR kit, it made iOS the, the largest AR platform in the world overnight. And so, I, I feel like there's tons of opportunities in there. And I'm going to definitely look into that sector, in the AR sector, and look to build apps that uh, people haven't built before. So why don't you tell me about your background sure. a little bit? So uh, uh, about nine months ago, I graduated from high school in New York, and I came out here to San Francisco, and I've been out here for nine months, and I attend the school called Make School Product College, um, which is uh, actually a school built by Joanna Hoffman's son, 
and Jonah Hoffman was Steve Jobs' assistant, and she was also part of the original Macintosh team. Um, and uh, the school is very specialized. There's a focus on computer science and product development. So we, we know how to uh, engineer and build apps, but also we know how to make things that people actually want. Um, and one of the apps I had recently built and was doing very well um, was this one called Finder. Because um, uh, about four months ago, I was looking for internships or full-time jobs. And I wanted, uh, I, I like to make things very personal. And so I like asking uh, recruiters the right questions. So I, I made an app that would take in a recruiter's email address. And then uh, I would feed it to to this uh, the app. And then it would uh, scour the web and find uh, the person's, uh, uh, all of their social media profiles or blogs and just information about them. And I will go, I will go over through that and um, understand who they were and ask them the right questions and uh, get to know them better. Um, so when I first built that app, um, on the first day of uh, release, it received over 2,000 downloads and it got featured on Product Hunt. It actually reached number three. Um, and so... One of the reasons why I changed the price of the app from 50 to $0 was because when I first built it and got all those downloads, there were a lot of different type of users. Um, there were the general population, which is you and me and everyone else, and companies. So I started realizing that the general population liked it, but there were a part of them that really hated it. And they were saying that, um, that I was stealing their personal information and they're going to sue me for it. Um, but then there's no, there's no way that they could see me because it's all public data. Um, but then companies, there are, uh, there are a lot of companies that are using it uh, for customer relationship management. And they were saying that they really loved it and they wanted me to uh, build more features on it. They were basically asking for more data. Um, and so I decided to change uh, the focus of the app of who I was targeting and uh, change the price from 0 to $50 so that the general population wanted to buy it and so that I could only focus on B2B. Um, and also recruiters, they were, they were using it to um, uh, search uh, candidates and understand who they were, uh, which was making the job easier for them. Um, so that's when I changed the price of the app from uh, 0 to $50. And then just recently, uh, I was going to have some friends download it, and that's why I changed the price back to 0 And the app, out of nowhere, started getting tons of downloads. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> nice. And, and what I other built this do? other app called uh, Vlogger because I... I love journaling. I journal every day. Um, and I decided to, when I first moved out here, I didn't have much time to to write. And so I started journaling, sort of like journaling through video on Snapchat. And so I wanted to make my own app where instead of um, having the videos get deleted, I would have it all persistent. Um, and I built Vlogger where um, users could record their day and share it. Um, and when I first made the app, I thought I was making it for myself for, or like for like people my age. And I started realizing that people from all around the world started using it. Um, and that they were mostly 13-year-olds from Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the UK. Um, so that was the app that I built. Um, and it really surprised me. So what's been the biggest surprise out of all of this so far? Out of uh, uh, the app that I built or WWDC? I would say WWDC. Um, the biggest surprise, um, it would be that like having just having the, the scholarship thing um, like I said before it has opened up so many opportunities 
and I feel like now I'm like directly connected with Apple. Um, and even some of the, the senior that I've, seniors that I've met before, uh, just recently met, they gave me their uh, their actual phone number where I could ask them questions directly instead of having to go through all these other things. Um, and now I feel like I'm sort of uh, the Apple community or part of Apple. Um, and I'm actually in the talks with them right now uh, about an internship for uh, their video app that they recently released called uh, Clips. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations, Kenny. Uh, I, I know that this is a, a huge turning point for you, and I hope we, we get to see what you Thanks build so next. We, we just talked with Kenny Batista, who is the scholarship winner for WWC 17. Yeah, that was very smart. cool. He's really accomplished a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing what else he does. You know, that's, that's so great that uh, Apple has opportunities like that for people. Uh, it's really hard to get into WWDC, but that they make themselves available like that is really a huge thing for yeah, for them for and for you know several years like now. I think um, in the main keynote, Tim Cook said this is the biggest group they've had, and um, I know they do a series of special events, and I guess they put them in in the dorms at Stanford, so they're able to collaborate with each other, and it's a really cool program. Makes me wish I was seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I want to be 17 again with all the troubles that came with it. Yeah, when it, I was but, 17, but I am the, envious. The programming language, yeah. or Apple's programming language, anyway. Wow, let's see. Yeah, I, when I was 17, Pascal, Assembly, Cobol, Fortran, um, and maybe just C. Not not C++, but C was around. And fourth, fourth was around. Fourth was cool. So let me ask you, we, we talked a little bit about iPad and where that's going. Talk to me a little bit about Apple Watch, because I, I think Apple Watch has been one of these platforms where we've seen it grow sort of steadily as it finds its legs and finds what it's going to be in the world. But this was the first time that I really felt like I understood why I wanted to wear an Apple Watch. So tell me and so tell our Apple listeners Watch what you saw. Apple Watch is getting a new runtime to make apps work better and a, a variety of yep. um, alternative interfaces, different watch faces that focus on, one of them was focused on Siri, which makes sense. It's kind of the direction, a lot of like this kind of proactive suggesting what's coming up and, you know, um, showing sort of a timeline. It looks a little bit like Facebook. It's, you know, it's like, here's, here's your photos that you took at some point in the, in the past that you're remembering. And here's your upcoming events going on. And also like you have an appointment and that already works. I mean, when you schedule stuff in your appointment, you get drive suggestions and upcoming ideas of, of what they think is kind of useful. So they're trying to put information in front of you that sort of proactively uh, suggests what you might want before you need it. They're also doing more with personalization. You can push photos to the, your own personal photos to the watch a little bit easier with sharing options. Um, there are some other things with Apple Watch I haven't looked at yet. Uh, I wear my watch every day. Um, I'm really into tracking health and I, I love data. I think I've said this before, uh, just seeing what your activity levels are, um, kind of seeing how that relates to what you're doing and kind of being able to look back and look at statistics and see what's happening with your body. I think that's really interesting. So I'm really drawn to that. Um, and also in just kind of in general as a wearables, Apple's wearable strategy is sort of incrementally unfolding uh, 
the watch is the most obvious part of it, but also AirPods and being able to, you know, have a, a Siri speaker pointed at your mouth so you can say things. Um, but also the way that they work together. Uh, one of the most obvious things is when you're listening to music, you can be listening to music from your phone, streaming music from Apple Music. Uh, and Siri is not the most uh, efficient way to do things like change the volume or skip to the next song. So you can pull out your phone, but if you're wearing the watch, you can have you can use the the music complication, and you can pull up your watch, and with one touch, you have access to changing your music and dialing it up without saying anything. So if you're riding a train or um, walking down the street, you don't have to be talking to your equipment to make things happen. Uh, I think Siri makes a lot of sense in the car. Uh, I don't. My car is not new enough to have CarPlay integration, but uh, I've rented cars that have it, and it's kind of sensible to have Siri integration going on in the car. When I'm walking down the street, even when there's nobody obviously around, I feel a little bit self-conscious about trying to talk to my AirPods or something like that. Um, but I think the upcoming HomePods are going to be somewhat of a changer because it's kind of an experience like being in a car. In fact, that's what I felt like when I was in the room listening to the, the, the new HomePods. Um, I felt like I was kind of sitting and say things and it would respond to you. And the kind of sound that it produces is also kind of reminiscent of being in a in a car where it's just enveloping sound all around you and it's not just coming out of a specific speaker. And, you know, Amazon deserves some credit for kind of putting out that idea of having kind of an always listening speaker. But what Apple's doing is a little bit a little bit different if they're focusing on sound quality. And um, you know, they mentioned the the musicality of, of Siri, but being able to ask, you know, hey, the song, when did it come out? Or, you know, play songs from a specific genre or time or who's playing, who's, who did the lyrics on the song or whatever. So kind of creating a new way to interact with Siri to do things that are very useful. Because a lot of these, um, a lot of the demos for speech assistance are asking things that people don't actually ask. And so I think Apple's really focusing on, like, what are the most useful things that people actually do with a voice assistant and in what um, in what environment would they use them so it's very useful in a car I think it'd be very useful in your living room or inside your house to be able to say things and um, in some cases it's easier on my Mac and and even when you're on on the phone like um, sometimes you know like I said walking down the street you feel kind of self-conscious but you're at home you can it's faster to say certain things than it is to type them out uh, in terms of like a question one of the things is if you're adding like a bunch of numbers, I think I've said this before, but um, you can rattle off a bunch of numbers and Siri is very good at that kind of thing. There's other things that Siri is not very good at or voice assistance in general is not very good at. And in a lot of cases, uh, your ability to convey information by talking is much slower than other things you can do, whether it's pointing and clicking at an interface or rapidly typing. Um, so it's, it's not an all or nothing thing. And I think there's kind of a media narrative that says, you know, that the future is kind of like the deck of Star Trek where you have people just talking to a computer all the time. There are some things it's very useful for and there's some things that it's not very useful for. So I don't think it's a, it's a you know, a binary direction that we're going in. I think there's a lot of things that are going to develop in tandem and there's going to be tools that are good for some things and not for others. And voice is an example of that. The, the least, you know, we, we talk a lot about voice first in a voice first world, but that doesn't, 
that's really shorthand for saying that the interface with the least amount of friction wins. And so if voice is the least amount of friction for certain tasks, then voice is the appropriate path through that task. If touch is the least friction for doing a task, then touch is the right path. If, if having a keyboard and a trackpad is the right answer, because that's going to be the least friction for getting something done, then that's the correct path through for interface. And, and what people are suggesting is that voice has a lot of, of frictionless experience for a lot of different types of tasks. Not that it's appropriate for everything. Touch has got a place as well. But that, uh, you know, as, as voice develops, yeah, I mean, that's where is, a lot of attention is, is going to go. A lot of like how easy it is to... Simply you know, because that friction goes away. Something, and um, there's that's one way of thinking of it. Another way is uh, what's the fastest way to um, get a response that's meaningful and useful in a form that you can use. And so, if you ask a yeah, so if you ask a yeah, sort of a jobs to be done, an kind appliance of or a device, something you get back a response. How do you direct that response in a way that is useful? So you can ask a question, and then now you have somebody saying something. And if you just want to hear an answer, that's great. If you want to play music, that's great. That's a, one of the best things that voice things are good for, um, picking a song. But if you have a query that you want to like put into some other, you know, you want to take the answer and plug it into an article you're writing or something like that, that's where just being frictionless doesn't matter as much because the result is it's giving you is not in a form that you can use this easily. So that's certainly one, one aspect of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I would like to say that, you know, we, you give a lot of credit to Alexa. I want to give some credit to Google because Google speaker was the first assistant that really gave a stronger focus to musicality in its main unit. You know, the Google's product had multiple speakers in its base and sounded a lot better than the Amazon product did. And, the other thing that was useful about it was, of course, Chromecast does multi-room audio already, and you can use the Google Home speaker to direct that audio to output through Chromecasts. So they really were working on this multi-room audio voice assistant kind of thing before Apple got there. I think where Apple's going to be really showing, you know, showing off what they can accomplish is that they're putting so much more into the audio quality. I have to ask, though, do you think, your opinion now, that the the HomePod product is going to be well, a successful cool product? Is it going to sell I've a lot of units? To, and the, I mean, you know, it's pretty early. It's been out for, you know, it's been announced for a week. But I've seen a lot of comments. And, like, people on the website were commenting, and they were talking about mm-hmm. how many they want to buy, not I want to see if this is something that will work for me. The last time Apple came out with a speaker like this was 10 years ago with the iPad Hi-Fi. And when you saw it demonstrated, it happened to be the same price. It was $350. Mm-hmm. Of course, our money has um, inflated slightly since then, so it's actually a little bit cheaper than that was. But um, there's a number of things that this does. I mean, a lot of a lot of what this does is different. It's not just a speaker. I think people have also been trained to use it by other products, and what? I think we're going to start seeing integration between different platforms. We've already heard um, Amazon talking about wanting to make things work together. So. You know, we may in the future see a lot of things that um, work together and it's not sort of like one winner where everybody else loses. When you look at other other things like, you know, iPads, there haven't been any other major winners in, in tablets. And Apple Watch, you know, every other watch has been kind of faded out of um, 
there was a lot of excitement about other watches for a while and it kind of faded and people are really liking Apple Watch. Um, so part of it r- relates to how well Apple gets Siri working. There's a lot of things that are, you know, very frustrating about using Siri right now, especially on your phone. Um, having less contextual awareness of what's going on. And like I said, you know, you get an answer and what do you do with it? Can you ask a follow-up question? Or um, So I think as Apple works to build more useful domains as far as like what Siri can do and how it can pass off uh, the requests you make, how it, in- it interprets your intent and hands it out to other apps, those are all things that Apple's been working on just for the last couple of years. So we're still quite new with a lot of this stuff. Um, but I think there is a lot of demand for it. And, and also, um, we've seen a little bit of HomePod, but we haven't seen a lot of what it can do yet. And that was kind of obvious when they were showing it and, and talking about it. Uh, they were obviously holding back a lot of things. Like, even the top of it is a little bit mysterious. There's a, a screen on top. There's sort of this, you know, the, the multicolored display thing that is, yeah, and it's it's not really clear what uh, the, the specs are and how that's going to work. Thing? Yeah, um, because in some cases you they sort of portray it being on a on a desk somewhere, so it may just be kind of a visualization primarily. But uh, on the the units that I listened to, there were plus and minus uh, icons on the top of it. It looked like they were printed that I didn't see or I didn't notice, I guess, when it was in the hands-on area, and it looked. It was it was like something you could you know physically turn on and off with your with your hands. So whether there'll be any sort of gestures or any other sort of display things that that plug into it, um, there's a number of questions that I have about what exactly you know some of the details of what's going to happen with it, and that's going to be presented later uh, when it gets closer to release, which I believe is kind of targeting December. But I think that there is a you know a lot of interest in it. And there's certainly other. I asked this question specifically because of the iPod Hi-Fi. You know, it, it, it sold at the same price point, even though, as you say, inflation has taken an effect on the money and the value of it. And it was not well received by the market at the time. I mean, it was it was well received in terms of uh, people saying it sounded good, but it didn't sell a whole lot of units. And it was not a product that was very long-lived. We didn't get, ever get a second version of it. It, it kind of it came out of in one release though. and then died. And um, I own one. I did, but it had a lot of competition from, you know, at the time there were there was the Bose that, there were the JBL ones at the time too. But it, it didn't live for very long. And I'm, I'm uh, kind well, of concerned and wondering it, it does what's going to make this more. one different. So iPod Hi-Fi did a lot. Um, it, was, it was basically a dock. You, you plug the dock in the top of it. And it didn't work with all the iPods. Well, it had a few well, features, I mean, it right? A, it had battery power. It had it was, battery yeah, it was power. A, and it basically had a large uh, optical speaker that you well. could carry around. Um, and you, you could plug a dock into it, and you could plug in audio input from... It had both audio, like mini jack in, and, and Toslink digital I.O. But it wasn't wireless. It didn't have anything like AirPlay. I don't think that was even out yet. Um, yeah, AirPlay came approximately like yeah, so five years later. Yeah, so the whole idea of, and you know, a lot of the value of that it was offering was something that other people could offer trivially. I mean, it, it was a speaker with a dock connector on it. And Apple didn't have a really strong need to be selling something like that because they could have third parties offer a whole variety of things that license the dock connector or license, you know, um, ability to work with iPods. And 
so there was kind of limited strategic value for Apple. It was probably better for Apple to be working with a lot of partners so that the dock connector became ubiquitous. And um, now with the you know, Lightning, since that was about five years after it came out, I think. Um, but And like I said, it didn't work with a lot of devices. It only, uh, even of the, the, I think even of the dock connector iPads, it didn't work with all of them. And it only presented, it didn't present USB power. So there were a lot of, it was like a product that, um, it was kind of a niche product that didn't really have a, a real strategic reason for selling. Where this is a very different product, it's not even portable. Apple does sell portable speakers under the Beats brand, the, the Pills, and those are quite popular, apparently, and they cost kind of the same same ballpark. I mean, they're a couple hundred dollars, at least. And they offer battery, and they're wireless and Bluetooth. Um, and I think Beats is going to be presenting a wide range of things. One of the interesting things that I noticed last year when I started talking about you know, the potential for a speaker like this and doing something similar to what Amazon was doing um, was that Apple already sells a, you know, the Beats and you can pair a couple of them together, sort of a proprietary solution with the, the app that comes with them, but you can have two of them set up and play stereo between them. And so there was kind of this obvious potential for Apple to be doing these kind of valuable things that third parties can't just trivially throw out a box with a speaker on it that works with the, the uh, ecosystem in all these various ways. So this is a much more strategic product. It's, you know, plugs into Siri, obviously, and also is integrated with Apple Music. It doesn't require Apple Music subscription, but if you have that, it's going to be able to provide a lot of other stuff and, you know, you can have access to all your music. So in a lot of ways, it's there's a lot of strategy there that wasn't there with earlier products. And um, also, people are very comfortable having Apple stuff in their house because they have CarPlay in their car and they have, you know, they're walking around with ear AirPods on and um, familiar with using Siri on their phone. So this makes much more sense as sort of a strategy that Apple's going to pursue in working in the home. So I think there's quite a big difference between that and, and the iPod Hi-Fi that Steve Jobs showed off. 11 years ago, it was. Of the labs and sessions that you've attended while you're out there, what has been the most interesting to you that we should know? Okay, so one of the interesting things that I, I saw over the last couple of days was something that I knew a little bit about, but I didn't fully, um, which there's a number of things I could say that about, uh, depth on the camera. So iPhone 7 Plus, when they first came out with it, they kind of sold it as, you know, here's, there's two lenses. One of them takes zoom and the other takes uh, regular photos. And then in the future, we're going to offer this portrait mode that when you take a picture, it kind of knocks out the background with this bouquet and it looks like this professional picture. And um, everyone I've showed that to is very impressed with it, more impressed than I am. I mean, I look at it and say, like, yeah, that looks cool. And then I see other people and they're like, wow, that's, that's like a professional camera. And it's a, it's a striking feature, but that's all that they did in iOS 10 when, when the iPhone 7 came out. That was like the feature of, was this portrait mode. And what they're doing now is they're making that, they're opening that technology up to third parties. So basically how it works is it puts both the cameras in the same um, focal length. So they're both at kind of 2x zoom. And then using two parallel cameras, they're taking a picture, they're taking two pictures and creating a differential between them. And what that gives you is a photograph and you can calculate a depth map. 
so it's you can kind of visualize it. They, they visualize it on stage as being sort of a, a black and white picture where um, things that are close to you are are lighter colored, and then in the background they go dark. And what Apple's used that for with the portrait mode was to do a very specific effect where the the user in the front in the foreground was um, in sharp focus, and the background is sort of has a nice kind of blur to it. But there's other things you can do. You can do um, you can use that map to knock color out of the background, so you desaturate the background, or you can uh, put different filters on different, basically planes of the photo, and you can do some really cool effects. And you can also uh, start doing some interesting things with 3D, where you can kind of tilt the um, photo, and you see a kind of a recreation of of the depth that that it was taken in, and so all those things are now open to third-party developers. And in addition, they're they're kind of beyond hinting about what's... I mean, it's quite obvious that iPhone 8 is going to have a new sensor, which we knew it has this depth sensor. So in addition to doing what, what's called differential depth, where you're taking two cameras and comparing the output of them to kind of figure out the relative depth of different objects in the camera, you have an actual sensor that bounces off. It's... Um, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's it's. I'm imagining it's somewhat like a Polaroid kind of camera where you're bouncing off to do focus, but you're creating a much more um, accurate depth map. And so they're like kind of. I believe they're laying the foundation for doing some really cool stuff for uh, very accurate depth in the future. That's not just for still photography. That it's going to be video. So you can do some really cool effects and they're opening up to developers so it's not just going to be like the the cool one-off feature that apple shows off as a feature of their hardware but you're going to be able to do a lot of interesting things and what we've seen with developers is you know when you have access to the camera and you have access to uh different kinds of data you can do really interesting things and that's really what apple is has kind of been about especially since the app store uh opened a decade ago is opening things up to developers to do really novel things that even Apple didn't think about. And then kind of following that string. So so you open something up, and people start doing something that's really cool, and then Apple's like, yeah, we need to flesh that out. And we're seeing a whole series of other things uh, related to, you know, of course with AR, that also figures into that, because you're doing, uh, if, you, if you can sense for depth, then you can do interesting things um, in terms of getting even more accurate and uh, more involved in what you're doing with being able to place sort of augmented reality objects in, in the um, apparent view. Um, but the whole idea of virtual cameras and using two cameras in tandem, there's there's just a whole lot of interesting things that are going to be happening in that sort of field. So that's that's one that's right on the top of my brain. I kind of feel like a, an old Apple II that, <laughs> that has like two 64K banks, and I have to do some bank switching because my brain is only 8 bits at a time. I gotta pull this in and out slowly, um, but that's something that jumped out at, at me really strongly today. There's also the stuff they're working with, sort of incrementally advancing health initiatives with Research Kit and Care Kit, making it easier for doctors and academics who maybe aren't developers to be able to build product that you know kind of prototype what they're doing, so they can get funding behind doing a particular study and making it available to people on on phones to record what they're doing and to follow up on. Um, procedures, things like that. One of the other interesting things uh, 
was related to Swift playgrounds, like Kenny was talking about. Um, that was one of the, it's kind of like the 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 assignment for kids getting a scholarship was do something interesting in Swift playgrounds. And if you haven't used Swift playgrounds, it's free on the iPad. You can go in and um, sort of get introduced to programming, understanding concepts. And the cool thing about Swift playgrounds is you can developers or anybody can build lessons that pull people through a, some specialty of in programming. And even before WWC, just before it, they introduced new support for Bluetooth devices, things like uh, the Lego Mindstorms and drones and other robotic products, so that you can, you're not just programming on a box, but you're seeing something in the real world that's interacting with what you're doing. So that's really cool for kids to see, you know, kind of applied programming, and you can, you can write this code that actually does something real in the real world. Um, so that's really, it'll be really cool to see where that um, takes off and where it goes, what kinds of things people are working with. Um, some of the other really interesting things are machine language. They've made it much easier to incorporate existing models into their applications. And of course, they totally redid uh, Xcode 9, it added a bunch of stuff, um, changed how it works, made it a lot easier. Some of the, the shortcuts that I guess it's called the tokenization of, of code. So when you're working with code, um, you have some kind of bracket structure or something, and you click on it, or you touch on it with the iPad, and it highlights the code as if objects, instead of just being text that you're changing one character at a time. So you can uh, work with code like it's a, a series of things. And that's now in Xcode. You can do this all over the place. Uh, you can do, you can replace variables like across your project. Um, did some really cool features with that. And um, I think I had another thing on the tip of my tongue. Oh, with, with machine language, you can bring in models that are developed in other, um, you know, specific machine language platforms for, so basically what machine language is, is, or machine learning, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you have a platform that takes real-world data, like say a whole bunch of photos, and it you design a model to learn how to identify objects, for example, or um, that's a, a common example. And what you end up with is a basically an output that sort of can be used to figure things out uh, to make inference of what something is. So, for example, you could have an app that takes a picture of something, and... Uh, your model will help you identify what it is. So that's machine That's uh, machine vision. And so Apple's incorporating a lot of things that, have, that are already being worked on um, to make it easy to put those kind of models in your product or in your, in your own projects and do really interesting things with them. And they're also accelerating, they're doing a lot of their own stuff, like uh, they have a new vision framework for, for working with um, those kind of tools. And being able to identify things like, I mean, Apple's already had face recognition in, in their products for a while. Now you're able to do more sophisticated face recognition. Uh, you can identify parts of a face. You can identify a face from the side. Um, much more accurate recognition of, of faces with less um, less false positives and less faults, you know, missing less uh, opportunities to pick something out, finding smaller faces. So there's a whole lot of um, 
little progress in a lot of incremental ways that things are getting better, in addition to big, huge things like ARKit, where you have a whole new ability to do really high-quality uh, augmented reality, which they showed in the keynote quite significantly. So there's a whole lot of things to be excited about. And we're going to talk about them more as uh, we get closer into the betas and into the uh, closer to final release of these things. WDC is an amazing experience, and I'm really fortunate to be able to attend. I, I have in the past um, several times, and I really appreciate the experience. It really helps you understand more of what's happening with Apple and why they're, why they're doing things. And um, it's a super great experience. So I'm really happy for especially all these kids on scholarship that are able to really use it and be able to find other people to uh, help them realize their ideas. It's really great. So I'm still digesting. I feel like my brain is a little bit melting and there's one more day left. <laughs> so I hope I survive. We just put up a piece on the, the lunchtime sessions. There was, there was three uh, on the first, the first day on Tuesday, they had a special session where Michelle Obama and Apple's environmental, uh, lead uh, Lisa Jackson did a discussion and then every lunch after that so the last three days they've had other speakers come in and talk about things so we did a, just did a piece on kind of recapping what those speakers were and, and their message so that was um, that's really great to check out well, I'm your host, Victor Marks. This has been episode 124 of the Apple Insider Podcast. And we will come back with more from uh, Daniel Aaron 8-Bit Brain Dilger next time on the Apple Insider Podcast. Well, thanks thank for you doing very that. Much, and thank you for joining us.